preliminary study of anti-Semitism. And today it's a great honor for us to have uh, Minister Julie Edelstein. They'll be speaking on uh, the title of the talk today is entitled Demonization and Delegitimization of Israel, a Form of Contemporary Antisemitism. And this is an issue uh, which I think prompted Yisa to actually start to deal with the contemporary forms of anti-Semitism and many scholars and public figures are actually arguing in our uh, discipline that the new form of anti-Semitism is really the new contemporary, if you will, Jew is the state of Israel and Israel is becoming the target for all sorts of uh, demonization and delegitimization from, from radical Islam on the one hand, which we spoke about this afternoon with Michael Walzer, to also the acquiescence of the left from a human rights uh, progressive agenda in which citizenship and equality is guaranteed under laws. Somehow, some on the left, particularly in Western Europe, seem to be, uh, in my opinion, in the ways of the opinions of many scholars, uh, forgetting the basis of uh, this discourse. So, uh, Minister Edelstein is currently the Minister of Public <coughs> Affairs and also, importantly in this context, for, for diaspora. And he's held this position since March of 2009. He's been a member of the Knesset since 1996 and was a, one of the founding members of Israel Ba'aliyah, uh, which was started in 1996, and he served on many committees in the party. He served, for example, on the Committee on the Status of Women, the Committee for Immigration and Absorption in Diaspora Affairs, Education and, and Culture, uh, International Affairs and Environmental Committee, Constitutional Law and Justice Committee, and the State Control Committee. Um, from 1996 to 99, he served as the Minister of Immigration Absorption. From 93 to 94, he was the advisor, then to the office of opposition leader, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. From 90, 1990 to 93, he was the department head for the Mellet Center for Zionist Education. And from 1988, uh, soon after he arrived in Israel, uh, to 1996, he served as the vice president of the Zionist Forum of Israel. Uh, from 1984 to 1987, uh, Mr. Edelstein was um, accused of uh, fabricated charges by the former Soviet Union, the state of the former Soviet Union, and he served three and a half years in a labor camp as a prisoner of, of Zion, or as a, a refusenik. Uh, he was a Hebrew teacher in Moscow, which in those days was a difficult and a serious act of um, um, maintaining identity and allegiance to the Jewish people in the state of Israel. And he was an Aliyah activist. And I was saying actually in Jerusalem, in, 19, in December of 1994, I was actually with a friend uh, from Montreal, Stephen Singerman, uh, we went to Moscow and then Leningrad to meet with leaders of the refusement movement. And we re both remember, we spoke today, uh, remembered your case. So it's really not only a privilege and an honor to have you here as a minister of the Israeli government, but also given the history to, to have you here as a well. So, so welcome. Thank you. Quite an experience to hear all your biography unfolding backwards from now back. <laughs> anyway, uh, good evening. Thank you for coming. Uh, I'll try to uh, be uh, as brief as possible in terms of lecturing so that we'll have more time for questions and remarks. I guess this is the best way to really <coughs> explore issues that uh, are of uh, real interest to people who, uh, who are present. 
Well, I will start with uh, uh, saying that uh, uh, in 1918, uh, a book was published in uh, the then Russia, a book by Professor <coughs> Solomon Lurie. It was called Antisemitism in the Ancient World. Uh, I remember reading that book, what used to be called Samizdat, the type-printed uh, books that were not officially allowed about 30 years ago. And the reason I'm mentioning it is that uh, the most interesting thing about that book is the foreword. In his foreword, Professor Lurie writes that he actually started working on that book, Antisemitism in the Ancient World, in the um, I think 1914 or 1915. And then when the, what is known as the Great October Revolution occurred, 1917, he stopped working on the book. Because, writes Professor Lurier, he thought that every historic research should be somehow relevant. And thus, there will be no more anti-Semitism after the Great October Revolution because the reasons for the anti-Semitism, the regime, the Tsarist regime, disappeared, there was no use to continue the research. Mind you, the book was published in 1918, meaning max a year later. It took him just a couple of months, I guess, to realize that anti-Semitism was still a relevant issue and to resume working on that book. Um, starting with this sad sentence to uh, sad example, rather, to uh, kind of stress that unfortunately, uh, I guess we mm, uh, can talk about different forms of anti-Semitism, different uh, ways of anti-Semitism to act, but it's very difficult to be uh, so optimistic as to say that after this and that social change, world change, even global change of the kind we witnessed just 20-something years ago, uh, anti-Semitism basically disappears. Uh, on the contrary, in the report that we prepared, and uh, uh, you kindly mentioned that it's part of my ministerial responsibilities, among other things, uh, in the report that we prepared uh, just two weeks ago, uh, it unfortunately seems that uh, 2009 uh, was the worst year in the last 20 years in terms of the anti-Semitic acts, attacks, you name it, attacks, you name it, uh, all over the world. I'm saying all over the world in order to stress that it's not just, you know, this kind of statistics game that we all know that, say for that matter, in Canada the situation was terrible, the numbers went up, and it kind of changed the whole statistical picture. That was not the case. All over the world there was, unfortunately, according to the data we have, the worst situation since 1990, and I mentioned 1990 because this is considered the year when a kind of, I don't want to say scientific, but at least uh, serious follow-up uh, started on uh, anti-Semitic events in uh, different countries. Uh, I think that uh, to really uh, pass through the, this uh, report, uh, uh, we have to say that uh, there are two main types, with all the problematic definition of it, two main types of anti-Semitic events we, we are witnessing. Uh, we are going to deal today with what is called the new anti-Semitism, and I'll explain in a second why I have a problem with this term, but 
we should never forget that still, if we look at the report, in many places, definitely we have some kind of geographic division here. In many places, there are good old acts of anti-Semitism having nothing to do with Hezbollah or Hamas or Operation Kastlid. Well, the examples we all know, we can give the recent example, for example, of what happened just a month ago in a country called Moldova, in Kishinev, where a group of uh, churchgoers led by a priest went to some uh, menorah standing there, Hanukkiah standing there in the street, uprooted it, even had some ceremony with the main line, line being that the Jewish symbols shouldn't be so close to the church. The government apologized, the church leaders apologized, but the fact is, I promise you, that has nothing to do with the IDF activities anywhere in the world. But uh, uh, at the same time, we definitely, if we are talking especially about uh, uh, 2009, we can't avoid the influence of uh, of uh, the Middle East situation, what is happening in the state of Israel, uh, with this ongoing, unfortunately, conflict, and its influence on uh, uh, acts of anti-Semitism. In some cases, like in a clear cut, I mean, when we are looking at a kind of caricature in a paper, and uh, there is a, uh, I don't know, the good old, once a week, the good old uh, description or picture of a Jew with a big nose and uh, uh, sticky fingers, uh, either counting money or drinking blood, even if it says on, on this wonderful personality, Israeli, or even if this fellow is uh, wearing something that looks very much like IDF uniform, it's absolutely obvious that we are talking about, once again, something that for years, unfortunately, for generations, used to symbolize the classic antisemitism. Uh, and uh, 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 at the same time, the, the reason I mention that it's uh, kind of, I have a personal problem, it's not something that I'm pretending to, to write this thesis on, but I have a personal problem when we call it new antisemitism. It's not new. Because once again, going back to my personal history, I have to testify that in the 60s and the 70s, it was strictly forbidden to be an anti-Semite in the former Soviet Union. It was allowed, though, to attack Israel, Zionism, and so on and so forth. So the very caricatures, the very descriptions, the very stories about Israeli soldiers, uh, I don't know, drinking blood or raping women, uh, women or harvesting organs, were part of the official Soviet publications, never, never mentioning the Jews, the Israelis, the Zionists, the occupants, and so on and so forth. So we can't really factually say that this is new. But definitely, I do have to say first person singular. For me, it always associated with the terrible regime. I never could imagine that in the Le Monde of Figaro, or Guardian for that matter, I would find the same descriptions uh, uh, 20, 30 years later. Uh, at the same time, and there is always this legitimate question, uh, isn't it like a little bit simplifying? We can easily get to the situation when someone who criticizes Israel on anything and says, Mr. Edelson, I don't like your policy, or I don't like your politics, I would immediately say, you're an anti-Semite. You don't have the right to talk to me like that. Definitely, we don't want to be in that place. 
So I think that we have to start looking for a definition. There's criticism of certain policies, certain governments, certain countries. What's different about this attitude of uh, uh, attitude towards Israel? I think that, that uh, one of the definitions that uh, many of my colleagues and myself have been using is the so-called 3D definition. With the three Ds standing for demonization, delegitimization, and double standard. And if we apply to certain uh, things happening, acts, pictures, books, articles, the three Ds, we can try at least to define whether we are talking about someone who is legitimately not agreeing with something the state of Israel or the government of Israel or the people of Israel are doing, or we are talking about something that looks to me always in my head as you know this picture of a stream of water. That if you block it with stones, the water still tries to find the bypasses and the ways out. So now in this post-Holocaust world, where there are respected journalists, professor, political leader, elected official, can't write in a paper, or can't write in a book anything about dirty Jews sucking blood of children. The stream of water somehow finds its way out in these new forms of hatred towards Israel, towards Zionists, and you basically just by using different terms give way to the to the same emotions. You know, the examples of that are definitely uh, like the latest examples if we think about them, and they are probably connected to what we were just marking yesterday, the International Holocaust Victims Memorial Day, an official UN data date. Sorry, uh, you know the, the most the most terrible example I had. <laughs> an opportunity to speak to the Secretary General of the UN the day before yesterday, yesterday about it is, is what happened with Haiti. The Israeli, as we all know, IDF medical, and not only medical, but rescue group, was one of the first on the scenes. It was, according to all the sources, including what the UN said to me, it was very efficient. And at the same time, the internet was full of uh, stories about Israelis going to Haiti in the first place to harvest organs. That was the reason that our delegation went there, our group, our rescue team went there. So uh, I am not official, not, not a single international body signed a thing like that, not a single respected publication published anything like that. The, 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 the internet is full. And no one is even trying to, you know what, to, uh, in a very simple technique, to hide the sources. It's very easy, easy to trace who started and where it went from. No one, no, one's scared, no one is scared. And two days ago in, in the UN, during a press conference with one of the deputy secretaries there about the situation, the humanitarian situation in Haiti, a Lebanese journalist asked the guy from the UN about the comments on, on, the, on the rumors or on the on the publications that the Israelis are harvesting organs in Haiti. So what I'm trying to say that I guess this, as I've said, you know, this stream of water that is trying to find its way out finds its way out sometimes in such terrible forms that on one hand you say a normal person can't even think about things like that. But it turns out there are many persons who are at least look quite normal and are spreading these, these things around. And the, 
Next to it, once again, you know, there are some cases that are not clear-cut cases. Two days ago, on the, three days ago, on the eve of the Holocaust uh, Memorial Day, a bishop in Poland says, with the logics of, uh, of the book of Exodus we are reading these days in the synagogues, with more or less the same, the same strange logic. logic. He says, A, there was no Holocaust. Rich Jews invented it. B, what the Israelis are doing to the Palestinians is Holocaust. So, I mean, uh, here it's, you know, you can find, when I say there's no clear cut, you can find kind of both definitions. On one hand, the good classical approach. On the other hand, the modernization of anti-Semitism in, in its new form. Now, as I promised not to deliver a long speech, and I'm already doing something very contrary to what I promised, uh, I would uh, sum up with saying uh, the situation is, as I've said, very, very bothering and troubling. At the same time, to, uh, uh, to be a little bit optimistic, I think that things could be done to address the situation. Uh, they could be done on a very practical level, and we are trying to do that. Like, for example, legislation in different countries. I think that what happened in the last 15 years has been great progress in many countries around Europe, uh, and even some countries outside Europe, in terms of uh, proper form forms of legislation. In some cases, it's against uh, xenophobia, racism, anti-Semitism, hatred, and so on, national, uh, racial, uh, racial hatred, and so on. In some cases, it's specifically targeting anti-Semitism. But I think that there has been progress. There has been there have been cases of uh, persecution according to, to, to this legislation. So uh, I think that uh, there, is, there is some improvement in terms of that. And by the way, I'm very careful when I talk about the latest report, I'm very careful not to single out specific countries because the data is still coming in. So I don't want to say something and then in two weeks from now apologize, say, apologize and say, well, that's not exactly what I, what I knew then. Uh, but uh, I can say for a fact that in certain countries uh, the situation is better than the others, not because the population is different, because the governments are taking an, taking an acting stand, they are fighting anti-Semitism, they are using the legislation, so you can see that in, the, in certain countries the situation is, is better. By the way, Germany is a good example. Uh, if I may give a positive example, and I hope I won't regret it after I get all the all the... Uh, statistics, but but uh, uh, except for legislation, uh, we have an ongoing body, and I'm sure that uh, uh, people who are interested in it, researching the field, know about it. There's the Global Forum on Combating Antisemitism that just met in December in uh, Jerusalem uh, last time, but it's a kind of an ongoing forum uh, of uh, prominent. Uh, uh, Leaders, academics, uh, elected officials, uh, human rights organizations, and uh, so on and so forth. And uh, uh, I think that there is influence of that forum felt in different countries, especially uh, to take into consideration the fact that we have uh, incited the uh, uh, group of members of parliament, international parliamentarian uh, uh, com combat anti-Semitism for, uh, force, uh, uh, by the way, Jews and non-Jews from different parliaments, and the immediate result, for example, of, of, 
uh, this group is that at least in three countries as of now, uh, England, Italy, and Canada, there is a special official, there's a whole procedure, the official uh, parliamentary committee on the investigation of anti-Semitism in those countries, the reports are being submitted, so there are immediate, immediate practical results. So to sum it up, as I've said, you know, the situation is, is uh, uh, really worrying. At the same time, I think that we can get our act straight on it. There is no question for me, at least, we can question everything here, but there is no question about the connection between the things happening in our area and the, the immediate interpretation into hatred, and acts of hatred, towards Jews and Jewish communities around the world. But uh, with the proper presentation of the problem, I think that we could try to change this terrible tendency of the rising anti-Semitic attacks. Thank you very much. So we'll, we'll open it up for questions, and I'll take the prerogative of asking the first question, if I may. Um, so, from my perspective, the rise of anti-Semitism is also, I think, to a large extent, coming out of the Middle East, uh, Iran, uh, radical mm -hmm. Islam, and perhaps the acquiescence of the human rights community in the West to really tackle this. And I would even argue, from my perspective as a scholar, that. Um, anti-Semitism and the demonization of Israel is becoming a national security issue for, for Israel. And I would even argue that the, the use of the protocols of the elders of Zion from Iran and from other, from Hamas and Hezbollah. And Egypt. From Egypt and uh, Jordan and other places and Turkey and uh, we spent a long time just discussing this. <laughs> but it's, it may be even more of a threat to Israel than uh, the nuclear weapons program of Iran. But this is really beginning to have traction in many parts of the world. So my question is, what is the Israeli government really going to do? This is a national security issue. I think it's wonderful to see the Netanyahu government seems to be speaking, I think, louder than previous governments to this issue, to the rise of anti-Semitism in, in the global context. What is the government going to do politically, but also perhaps in setting up programs within Israel to reach out to the world yes. and help fight this? Okay. Uh, well, first, thanks for the compliments about, about the government position because I do think that there is a certain change and I will say something very sensitive. I mentioned that yesterday in National Holocaust Memorial Day there is always, for me at least, I have to say first person singular is a second generation Holocaust survivors, there's always this lack of desire to put anything even close to Holocaust. I don't want to connect it to to anything, we have to talk about Holocaust per se. But at the same time, I think that what happened this year, the president, the prime minister, myself, with all the modesty, uh, we were all in different places. The president was in Berlin, prime minister was in Auschwitz, I was in the United Nations, uh, and uh, uh, we all tried to explain without, God forbid, comparing or diminishing or anything of the kind, try to explain that it's not enough just to say, oh, how terrible that we all, the whole world, allowed those things to happen. And then the next day, you know, go into, in my case, into General Assembly of the UN and listen to another clown talking about the destruction of the state of Israel and say, oh, he's just a clown. Don't take it too seriously. Don't be hysterical. So we are somehow in Israel, I guess not only in Israel, 
uh, as, as, a, as a people, I guess we are a little bit hysterical. I do have this strange tendency after the Holocaust to believe people who are saying loud and clear that they want to kill me. Uh, so so uh, uh, we are talking loudly. It's not enough just to talk. We have, uh, as it happens every year, on the week of the International Holocaust Memorial Day, there is a special cabinet meeting. And the government decision says that the government should have a cabinet meeting on the issue of the Holocaust Memorial and on the situation of combating anti-Semitism. So this year, when I brought the topic to the, to the cabinet, I uh, submitted also a resolution, a government decision, as we call it in the Israeli procedure, that a special committee should be created to coordinate the issue of combating anti-Semitism around the world because we view it as strategic threat. I wouldn't give it a comparison. Comparisons, uh, whether it's more dangerous or less dangerous than any other danger, but it is a, it is a threat. And uh, the decision that uh, was taken uh, basically says that the director general, which is like the top executive official in the Israeli system of my ministry and of the foreign ministry, will submit in 120 days uh, a report to the government, not a report, but a kind of a proposal to the government how we should unite in our effort on combating anti-Semitism and what, what we could and should do about it. And it, this is except for the ongoing activities. We have a special forum uh, headed by myself and the chairman of the Jewish agency, Mr. Sharansky, to uh, follow uh, the situation in different communities regarding anti-Semitism. And uh, uh, I think that, that uh, in terms of practical steps, there could and should be a coordinated effort, A, because, uh, because we are talking about the strategic threat, B, because I do want to say uh, that uh, I like it or not, but we are all talking about this direct connection between what is happening in Israel, in the Middle East, and the situation with the Jewish communities, which at least as far as I'm concerned, gives me also some kind of responsibility on, uh, over the things that are happening. And, uh, we are trying at least to follow up. Thank you very much. What has been the evidence uh, in the non-Arabic population in France for anti-Semitism? I know it's widely reported in the Jewish press here, um, but I haven't observed it. I'm not aware of it in France. So can you say a word about that? Yeah. First of all, you're right, if I, if I understand you correctly, in assuming that uh, in many countries in Europe and France, I wouldn't say first and foremost because uh, England is close to it, but uh, the radical Muslim groups are leading the wave of anti-Israelism, anti-Zionism, hence in many cases anti-Semitism. Uh, but what we do notice, and we can see it even, even in, <laughs> I think, in some pictures that I have here from the report, but, but we, we do notice that uh, uh, in a very strange manner, uh, the ultra-religious, radical Islamic activists are in many cases joined by ultra-secular left-wing communist-type groups from the local, uh, local community, and they hand-in-hand, hand, according to that old joke, you know, what is the brotherhood of the peoples, you know, that when they all take each other's hand and go to, to pogrom Jews. So this is more or less you know, the, 
the, the attitude that you see in many of these uh, violent demonstrations or whatever the case uh, uh, might be. So uh, definitely no one's taking demographic statistics. We can't approach a rally like that and try to find out whether it's like 70% radical Muslims and 30% ultra-left-wing uh, French radicals. But, but the combination is there, including in France, including in England, including in uh, Scandinavian countries. The combination is there. Yeah, speaking to that, do you think that Israel, are you optimistic or pessimistic that Israel can do a better job of addressing that the, the leftist group? Um, and by showcasing its diversity, the fact that Israel, of all the countries in the, in the Middle East, objectively, and for all its problems and all the mistakes it might have made, the U.S. government, objectively, is the country that needs the closest division of the left uh, in terms of gender equality, in terms of tolerance of homosexuality, in terms of uh, the fact that it's the most diverse racially and religious, ethnically, uh, in the Middle East. Can Israel do a better job of showcasing that? First of all, yes. We could do a better job, and that's part of the, of the things that myself and my colleagues are trying to do right now. I'm not sure we're so perfect in what we're doing. But uh, uh, on a more specific note, I would say that the, uh, most of the people we are talking about right now, hence that kind of a division I was trying to draw between the legitimate criticism or disagreement with Israeli policy or even, even with uh, like the Israeli side of the conflict. Uh, uh, and as opposed to 3Ds, I think this is my problem with just saying, yes, we could influence, in this case, as you said, the left-wing radical uh, groups by trying to explain to them that, uh, say, in Tel Aviv there is gay parade and in the Palestinian Authority, I don't even want to mention in front of this audience because of the graphic descriptions what exactly they do to, to homosexuals. Uh, doesn't take us anywhere because people, if my assumption is right and people who are at these rallies are there not because they really don't know the truth about Israel, but because this is this semi-animal, you know, attitude of anti-Semitism, the very fact that I can provide the facts and figures and the explanations doesn't really help. But having said all that, which brings me back to the beginning of my answer to, to your question, we could and should do a better job because somewhere out there, there are millions and millions and millions of people who are badly informed, disinformed, don't know the truth, hands have all kinds of wrong perception and wrong understanding of things going on, and they are the audience that we could target with facts, with figures, with showing Israel on a broader scale. Uh, it's a very difficult problem because uh, you have a very intelligent president of the United States who lords all the countries who are helping Haiti, and he, he doesn't have enough people to tell him to mention Israel, he just leaves it out. How do you change that attitude then? He has the facts, he has Israelis working for him, and he, he I mean, everybody knows Israelis were there first with the most, and he just shuts up, he doesn't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no comment. <laughs> Or Zionists, for instance, in Hebron, in these settlements, in that occupied territory, 
that inadvertently does um, propagate and create anti-Semitism. So how, what do you see about that? What do you think, how can that be approached in two ways, to perhaps further the peace process and also to help stop anti-Semitism? Well, I, I personally, I do have to say that the, um, I'm not sure that the type of anti-Semites we are talking about fall into this category of people who have this uh, division of uh, liberal Tel Aviv, Bohemian, Israeli society and the settlers in Hebron, uh, some of whom are my friends and some of whom are people that I don't want to exactly identify with uh, or whatever. Uh, we are talking about a situation in which uh, uh, when we are talking about anti-Semitic uh, uh, drawings, caricatures, and papers, they are not targeting Hebron settlers. They target uh, uh, Ehud Barak, who is, uh, for those who don't know, a leader of the left-wing labor Israeli party. Uh, the arrest warrant is against Tzipi Livni, the leader of the Israeli opposition, who is the opposition from the left to the present Israeli government. So it's not about someone who doesn't behave towards the Palestinians, hence there is a wave of uh, uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, about the, promo the promotion of the peace process, I think that the, uh, the only proof we have about the connection between the peace process and, uh, and the evacuation of settlers, or evacuation of settlers is what happened after the disengagement from the, from the Gaza Strip, where all the settlers were evacuated, and uh, Israel remove its forces back to what is known as the Green Line, and the only response was a violent response of about 10,000 Qassam rockets coming out of there. So I think that it would be very difficult for me to try to build a theory that if we would evacuate settlers and settlements, then there will be less anti-Semitism. In the meanwhile, what we have is the only, as I've said, the only example or the only proof is proving the exact opposite. You mentioned Germany as good examples. Uh, I'm from Germany, and um, I, I didn't know that when I said that. So. <laughs> I, I think um, on the one, we have two problems there. On the one hand, you have very high numbers when it comes to false um, um, covering anti-Semitism. For example, we have a high number of Germans who compare um, Israel to the Nazi state. It's a very high number. And um, you have, uh, and with other questions, you have high numbers as well. But um, we also have another problem, um, that is that Germany is the biggest trading partner of Iran. Iran. And we have um, Chancellor Merkel, mm -hmm. who always uh, stressed that Germany should stand by Israel uh, when it comes to Iran. And she makes uh, she made a very good speech when she came to Israel in the Knesset, but she uh, did not stop this business with Iran and this support, this German support for Iran. So Germany has, I think, two-thirds of Iranian uh, companies use German machines. And it's really, it's really very, very important uh, what Germany does there. German companies deliver high technology and so on. And uh, now she said, um, we are doing much and we will have more sanctions, but at the same time she said we have to do that in the, uh, with the United, uh, with the Security Council. What do you think about this? 
um, um, what is, how is this received? Uh, what do you think about in Israel? Um, that there's a kind of, um, there's a gap between words and deeds. Okay. When I was referring to uh, specifically combating anti-Semitism on a practical level, level inside the country, I think that what you mentioned about still, unfortunately, many Germans comparing Israel to Nazi state and whatever, uh, I think it can only be a proof of what I was saying. It's not that the conditions are perfect and there is not a single German who is uh, attacking Israel and they, they all are dealing just with soul searching because of what happened. Uh, but the, uh, the very fact that government does take an active stand results in, in the fact that there are problems, there are skinheads, there are neo-Nazis, there are all kinds of things happening, but the statistics are not as terrible as they could be if it were not for, for the active stand. Now, Iran is a big problem because uh, uh, here we, we come to a dilemma. I'm talking right now not about anti-Semitism, not about Jewish or domestic affairs. We are talking about uh, a well-known problem in, on the geopolitical level. Germany is shaping its foreign policy the way that Israel is considered an ally, and I don't have doubts about it. It's not just for the sake of saying something very politically correct. And uh, at the same time, the, 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 the situation is that when someone asks the prime minister why there is such a big fuss, our prime minister, why, why there is such a big fuss and we all have to go to Germany with the, like half the cabinet uh, to have meetings with the German government, part of the answer is exactly the issue that you're raising, that unfortunately we still, still have to push and press and ask and, and explain. Uh, but when I called it a dilemma, the dilemma always is the huge economic cooperation here. It's our problem vis-a-vis -vis Germany in a different form. It's our problem vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Iran in a different form. But, but uh, uh, definitely Israel is not offering the kind of economic cooperation and the kind of markets uh, for any country the way Iran, unfortunately, is offering. So, it's a process, but of late, if I remember your know, life, if I remember correctly, they were, like in the last, hmm? after, after, a big, after a big scandal that lasted, by the way, lasted for, for those who don't, it was not very widely publicized, but it went on for at least, I know about it, for at least three months, this whole Siemens story. So, but then the question, how many subsidiaries are they going to create in Iran to continue the trade? <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Any other questions? I, I was reading about uh, Israel purchasing three submarines from Germany. And is there is the Israeli government doing anything, taking any steps to prevent accidental war? Accidental war? Yeah, I don't want to say accidental nuclear war. Yeah, I mean, I, I just don't want to start some like very general answer. Yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we are doing what we can in terms of of, of uh, preventing things, and uh, and as you know, uh, there were situations when we did feel. I'm referring to the very early 90s in an immediate and serious danger vis-a-vis -vis Iraq and still the then 
for example, defense minister was even criticized in Israel for such a, you know, hold your horses position. But I guess there were good reasons because uh, uh, everyone, everyone in Israel was considering the subject that you're raising and the easiness to strike a match and then to deal with all the consequences. Uh, well, uh, as far as uh, uh, <laughs> today, I had a very interesting conversation with a group of students in one of the universities in New York, and uh, I think that first of all, if we look at some criticism coming towards Israel and what Israel is doing from certain radical left circles, including, as you said, led by uh, people who are Jewish. Uh, I think, you know, what I said to those uh, students was that I guess in some very twisted way, but it's also part of the Jewish identity, you know, it's like, uh, it's not just, you know, that you are so liberal that you care about the whole world and everything that is happening, but in this specific case, you know, you still feel Jewish and you, you want to prove that, you know, that you are fighting the ultimate evil because, because of this twist in your identity and it hurts you so much that Israel is doing something that to you looks wrong. Uh, 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 in Israel, once again, you know, we were just talking about it. It's a, it's a democracy. I just hope that uh, we don't get ourselves into the situation that we will be so open that the brains fall out. But uh, we, are, we are very open. And we are, I'm not sure that I want it any other way with uh, my personal experience. So I'm prepared to uh, deal with the consequences and it's very difficult because uh, uh, I basically, if I'm involved in a kind of a ping pong with an audience about things that we are doing or not doing in the Middle East, I can easily find all the right answers before there is some person who says, yes, minister, you may be right, but the retired general of IDF wrote three days ago in the Israeli paper this and this and this and this. And how come that he totally disagrees with what you say? You can't say that he's anti-Israel. You can't say that he doesn't know. It's difficult. But at the same time, so what can I do? I, I don't understand it. I think that uh, I know what is happening. I think that uh, Israel is not that terrible. I think that... Uh, uh, Israel uh, is even in a, uh, in a, to a very big extent, one of the uh, best democracies that I know with all the problems. Definitely, I'm making this uh, comparison without uh, saying as a democracy involved in a war conflict. I'm just saying a democracy period. Uh, but there are people who think differently. People probably that uh, think that uh, the standard should be very high, as long as it's not double standard, the way I mentioned it, as long as uh, they're not allowing others, and this is my problem with some radical left organizations, they, it's perfectly okay for them to uh, see how the Sesame Street and the Gaza Strip uh, uh, is teaching five-year-old children that the best 
the best way to live is to kill an Israeli. Uh, but at the same time, the sensitivity the other way around is that in a certain place, in a certain school, the teacher said that Jerusalem is the capital of the state of Israel and forever will stay the capital of the state of Israel. Then there is a, an attack. How come the teacher is talking politics? So uh, if this is the kind of a double standard, I don't like it. If it's just expressing the radical opinions, no. As, as we say in Hebrew, she will In a totally unrelated matter, that there was a Jewish judge standing at the same podium 24 hours ago from South Africa who works in the United Nations. But, and, no. <laughs> is there any evidence for opposition to anti-Semitism in the Arab and Muslim worlds? Very little. Unfortunately, very little, and it's really troublesome. Because I didn't touch on this subject, but uh, what I mentioned right now about Sesame Street is uh, this, at least you could attribute to, you know, the war situation, they don't find the proper limits and the proper borders, and they are like teaching the future generation, which is very sad for us in terms of the solutions for the conflict and politically, but, but uh, as the professor was saying, you know, uh, uh, we can find uh, dozens of witnesses, of uh, uh, evidences, uh, how on state TV in Arab countries you get different versions of modern protocols of the elders of Zion, and, uh, and I, I for one, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know many examples of someone local getting up and saying, guys, you're playing with fire, it starts with the Jews, it never ends with the Jews, let's not play with this. Unfortunately, that's not the situation, and the, 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 the power of these things in, in many cases is really disgusting, and you sometimes just wonder how these things travel, you know. You kind of associate uh, many of these things with uh, Eastern Europe of uh, 150 years ago, 120 years ago, and they are part of the reality in modern Arab or Islamic world. And uh, I, for one, don't know of much opposition. Yeah, it's a little bit different, I think, in Iran, uh, I know that in uh, Germany there are a lot of Iranian groups, um, opposition groups, who um, are really um, looking on what's happening in Israel, and they uh, they are longing for support and all that, and they are looking very closely on how um, Israel reacts to the opposition and to what's going on in the streets. And when at the New Year um, the Israeli president addressed the Iranian people, I know that that was very important for for the Iranians, and so. I know from my friends I'm working with in, in, in Germany, my Iranian friends, uh, many of them like to go to Israel and look at how it's like and talk to the people and they are unhappy that they are not invited. And I know from the other side that it might be a little bit, uh, yeah, not so easy to do that. What, what do you think about? Well, first of all, it might be different in Iran. I, I would still, you know, I, uh, as you can imagine, as I guess every normal person was watching those pictures coming on Twitter or Facebook or wherever out of Iran and was shocked because, uh, A, because of what was happening, B, because most of the world was standing idly by and, and watching, but uh, 
At the same time, I wouldn't exaggerate. I don't think that if I was my, say, keeper skullcap would be appear in front of those opposition demonstrators, I would win the popularity contest. I'm not sure that they are such a pro-Zionist and pro-Jewish crowd. They have their internal disagreements, but there are still many of them are uh, radical Islamists, and many of them, unfortunately, for years have been uh, swallowing this whole wave of anti-anti. And look, let's face it, it's, it's, for us, it's easy to talk about it. We know the facts. When someone doesn't, and from the age of zero, is getting on the TV those stories about Jews killing Muslims, raping Muslims, uh, destroying homes, all of these things, it influences. We, we can't deny that. But on a, more, on a more positive note, Iranian society is to some extent different because it used to be a modern society to a certain period of time. And for example, one fact that I can mention is that there is a website of Yad Vashem, of the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. They have about 10,000 visitors from Iran, from Iran. Not using the language, I mean, not, not uh, visitors from Los Angeles, but uh, from Iran. So there is something. And also called Israel, the Voice of Israel, the radio station in uh, Farsi. That's me. I, I'm the minister in charge. Yes, we are broadcasting. Yeah? And it's, but it's one of the most popular shows in Iran. In Iran. We're not doing enough in terms of that, but uh, you're right. Good. Uh, I don't think it's anti-Semitic. I think it's biased. Uh, by its very mandate, and uh, you know, I just <laughs> the previous meeting, I, I quoted something that I just recalled. <laughs> Many, many years ago, when I was a student, I was reading a book by a famous linguist in the beginning, wrote this book in the beginning of the century. And he, his book, just to prove a point, said that it's impossible to compare between a carrot and a phonema. And uh, uh, so uh, when Goldstone, in terms of his mandate, or his committee, is trying to prove that even both sides were wrong. Hamas was wrong, and Israelis were wrong, or both sides were in something right and something wrong. For me, it's an impossible comparison. It's just there's no basis for comparison. So, so, uh, uh, so from the very beginning, I think that inevitably the report was biased. I was, by the way, part of the ministerial committee, uh, five ministers that decided not to cooperate with the Goldstein Committee, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, I, if I would have been asked to vote against today, I would vote the same. Because uh, there were good Israelis who, not representing the state of Israel, went to Galston and submitted information and papers and their evidences and opinions and whatever, and nothing of this appears or was taken into consideration uh, by the report. That's why I'm, I'm saying that there was no real attempt to find uh, the truth and the facts. Uh, you know, I can give even sadder examples about certain points of the report where, where uh, for example, it turns out that he didn't even bother to read the Palestinian press. Okay, we Israelis, we are all 
propaganda. But in the Palestinian press, there were things that contradicted totally what Goldstone was saying about certain things. For example, in the Palestinian press, there was an evidence of a 14-year-old boy in an official Palestinian paper saying that the, uh, sorry, I don't have the exact quote, but the boy was saying in, a, in an interview that uh, they didn't want Hamas activists in their house, but the Hamas terrorists came and were in their house. And as the boy says, and if you would try to escape, or if you would try to tell them not to go in, they would shoot you in your, in your legs. So it's in a Palestinian paper. It's not Israeli IDF propaganda machine. So, and the, all those things were not taken into consideration by Goldstein Report. Now, something that is more relevant to, 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 to the conversation about anti-Semitism, I did take the liberty, for example, to, to say to Secretary General of the United Nations the day before yesterday that I, I am worried about the implications or the influence of the Goldstein Report on this wave of, of new anti-Semitism. Even if that was not the initial intention, neither of the UN nor Goldstein himself, the very fact that this kind of atmosphere is created and is, uh, there's this kind of legitimacy given to, to all kinds of organ harvesting stories, and this is very close. He didn't write anything like that. But if like, there is step one, it's very close to step two, and then there's the step three, and so we are, we are doing all those terrible things. So, uh, someone who is publicizing papers of this, of this kind and someone who is on the campaign to promote this report till this day, I think should take into consideration that not every person who is getting hold of this information of this report is professor of international law uh, who is analyzing. There are other people who say, ah, that's exactly what I thought about those Israelis and those Jews. There's time for one more question, um, I, I think there are, there are legitimate reasons to, to question the authenticity or the process of the Goldstone Report. Um, but I do think it's important for any society that is democratic to have a mechanism for self-criticism. Absolutely. Um, so you described a number of real shortcomings from that report. Um, could you maybe come up, share with us some ideas of what might be a more legitimate or more appropriate mechanism of self-criticism. Oh, uh, by the way, there is a, uh, thank you for the question because there was a, even like some kind of misunderstanding uh, here in this country and even in the Israeli press. It uh, appeared three or four days ago that Israel is preparing a response to the Goldstone report that will be submitted to the United Nations. Um, this is just incorrect, uh, and uh, you asked a very good question, and I think that Israel is a kind of a front-runner, even some say that even it runs too fast, uh, in terms of checking itself after every military operation. Uh, in some cases, when there was reason for that, there were even special committees headed by Supreme Court judges, and we all know the first Lebanese war and some other cases. Uh, in this case, uh, there was no necessity to create a committee like that, but uh, there were a number of, uh, of investigations mostly taken by the IDF. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I don't have a paper in front of my eyes right now, but I think 136 uh, reports 
uh, were investigated by the IDF. Reports of misconduct, abuse, uh, looting, all, all kinds of things. Some of them happened. Yes, there was an Israeli soldier who went, I'm ashamed of it, who went into a Palestinian house where the family obviously had to run away or whatever, and he took a credit card from there and some money that he found and some other valuable objects that he could find. Terrible. Really terrible. And there were several cases of that kind. But none of the investigations showed definitely any deliberate assault of civilians or any of the cases close to the Boston report. So, so uh, what actually is being done right now is that the IDF is collecting all this information of many of the investigations. Some of them happened before any Israeli ever heard the, the name Goldstone. And some of them happened parallelly to Goldstone Committee, and some uh, have been finished uh, not long time ago. And uh, most of the results are being submitted according to the request of the Secretary General of the United Nations, are being submitted. And the request, the exact request was for Israel to provide all the information coming out of the investigations and checkups of the Operation Kasli, that's exactly what, what uh, we admit. And you're absolutely right, it's very, it's very important for any country to, to follow up on the things it's doing. It's the, the first and basic sign of any democracy. Okay, so on that note, I'd like to thank you for coming. Thank you for the police uh, presence here, for help. And thank you very much, it was an honor to, to host you. And on behalf of Lisa, thank you very much for coming. Thank you.